7. Edward and the great regent Pedro, left a name for observations and scientific research. Thus Pedro, in his travels through most of Christendom, collected invaluable materials for discovery, especially an original of Marco Polo and a map given him at Venice, which had all the parts of the earth described, whereby Prince Henry was much furthered. Good maps indeed were almost as valuable to him as good instruments, and they are far clearer landmarks of geographical knowledge. There are at least seven famous charts either left to us or described for us of the 14th and early 15th centuries, which give a pretty clear idea of what Henry's own age and his father's thought and knew of the world some of which we believe to have been used by the prince himself, and each of which follows some advance in actual exploration. First of all comes the Venetian map of Marino Sanuto, drawn about 1406, and putting into map form the ideas that inspired the first Italian voyages in the Atlantic. On this the south of Africa is washed by the sea as the Vivaldi had hoped to find it, but the old story of a central zone, uninhabitable from the heat, still finds a place, helping to keep up the notion of the tropical seas, always kept boiling by the Sunday, that held its own so long. Besides this, in Sanuto's map there is no evidence that anyone had really been coasting Africa, Henry is not anticipated and can hardly have been much helped by this very hypothetical leap in the dark but the Florentine map of 1451, called the Laurentian Portlano, is to all appearance a record of the actual discoveries of 1441 and 1446, and a wonderful triumph of guesswork if it is nothing better, for Africa is not only made an island, but the main outline of its coast is fairly drawn, in its western corner the headlands, bays, and rivers are laid down as far as Bajander, and the three groups of Atlantic islands, Azores, Canaries, and Madeira, appear together for the first time. Beyond this names grow scarce, and on the great indent of the Gulf of Guinea, enormously exaggerated as an island there is nothing to show for certain any past discovery, which suggests that this map was made for two purposes. First, to record the results of recent travel, secondly, and chiefly, to put forward geographical theories based upon tradition and inference, what men of old had told and what men of the present could fancy. Long after the Italian leadership in exploration had passed westward, Italian science kept control of geographical theory, the Venetian maps of the brothers Pizzagani in 1367, and of the Camaldolese convent at Murano in 1380 and 1459, and the work of Andrea Biagco in 1436 and 1448, are the most important of medieval charts, after the Laurentian and along with these must be reckoned that mentioned above as given in 1425-8 to Henry's brother, Don Pedro, on his visit to Venice. This treasure has disappeared, but it was said by men of Henry's day and after time, who saw it in the monastery of Alcabaca, to show, as much or more discovered in time past than now, if their account is even an approach to the truth, it was in itself proof sufficient of the supremacy and almost monopoly of Italians in geographical theory with 1475 and the Catalan map of that year, which specially refers to the Catalan voyage of 1346 and may be taken as one result of the same. We come to Spanish parallels, but until the death of Henry in 1460, Italian draftsmen were in possession, and from his great map of 1459, the evidence and result, in great measure, of the navigator's work, could only be drawn by Venetians for the men whose discoveries it recorded. But there is one other point in Italian map science which is worth remembering. At a time when most schemes of the world were covered with monsters and legends, when cartography was half mythical and half miscalculated, 
the coasting voyagers of the Mediterranean had brought their portolani or sea charts to a very different result. And how was this? Did they get right? As it were, by chance, they never had for their object, says the great Swedish explorer and draftsman, Baron Nordenskjold, to illustrate the ideas of some classical author, of some learned prelate, or the legends and dreams of feats of chivalry within the court circle of some more or less lettered feudal lord. They were simply guides to mariners and merchants in the Mediterranean seaports, they were seldom drawn by learned men, and small enough, in return, was the attention given them by the learned geographers, the men of theory, in the 15th and 16th centuries. But these plans of practical seamen are a wonderful contrast in their almost present-day accuracy to the results of theory let loose, as we see them in Ptolemy and the Arabian geographers, and in such fantastics as the Hereford Map Mundi. So well known in England, map sketches of this sort, were unknown to Greeks and Romans. As far as we can tell, the old Periply were sailing directions, not drawn but written, and the only Arabian coast chart known to us was copied from an Italian one, but from the opening of the 12th century, if not before, the western Mediterranean was known to Christian seamen to those at least concerned in the trade and intercourse of the great inland sea. By the help of these practical guides, from the middle of the 13th century, when the use of the compass began on the coasts of southern Europe, the Portolani began to be drawn with its aid, and by the end of the same century, by the time of our Hereford Map C. 1400, these charts had reached the finish that we see and admire in those left to us from the 14th century, for, of the 498 specimens of this kind of practical map now left to us, there is not one of earlier date than the year 1411. Among these specimens not merely the mass of materials, but the most important examples, not merely 413 out of 498, but all the more famous and perfect of the 498 are Italian. The course begins with Vascon's chart, of the year 1411, and with Dulcerts of 1439, and the outlines of these two are faithfully reproduced. For instance, in the great Dutch map of the Barentsoon C. 1594, for the type once fixed in the 14th century, recurs steadily throughout the 15th, and 16th, the type was so permanent because it was so reliable, every part of the Mediterranean coast was sketched without serious mistake or disproportion, even from a modern point of view, while the fullness and detail of the work gave everything that was wanted by practical seamen, of course this detail was in the coastlines, river mouths, and promontories, it only touched the land features as they touched the seas, for the Portolani were never meant to be more than mariners' charts, and became less and less trustworthy if they tried to fill up the inland spaces usually left blank. For this, we must look to the highest class of medieval theoretical maps, those founded on Portolani, but taking into their view land as well as water and coastline, and such were the celebrated examples we had noticed already. Note, it was a man of theory, Raymond Lully 1235-1415, of Majorca the famous alchemist, who was credited with the first suggestion of the idea of seeking a way to India by rounding Africa on the west and south. Chapter VI, Portugal to 1400, 1095-1400, Henry the Navigator is the hero of Portugal, as well as of discovery, the chief figure in his country's history, as well as the first leader of the great European expansion, and the national growth of 300 years is quite as much a part of his life quite as much a cause of his forward movement, as the growth of Christendom towards a living interest in the unknown or half-known world around. 
The chief points of interest in the story of Portugal are first the stubborn restless independence of the people, always rising into fresh vigor after a seeming overthrow, and secondly their instinct for seamanship, which Henry was able to train into exploring and colonizing genius. There was no physical justice in the separate nationality of the Western Kingdom of Lisbon any more than of the Eastern Kingdom of Barcelona. Portugal was essentially part of Spain, as the United Provinces of William of Orange were essentially part of the Netherlands. In both cases it was only the spirit and endurance of the race that gave to some provincials the right to become a people, while that right was denied to others, and Portugal gained that right by a struggle of 300 years, which was first a crusade against Islam then a war of independence against brother Christians of Castile, last of all a civil strife against rebels and anarchists within. In the 12th century the five kingdoms of Spain were clearly marked off from the Moslem states and from one another, by the end of the 15th there is only the great central realm of Ferdinand and Isabella, and the little western coast kingdom of Emmanuel the Fortunate, the heir of Prince Henry. Nations are among our best examples of the survival of the fittest, and by the side of Poland and Aragon we may well see a meaning in the bare and tiresome story of the medieval kingdom of Portugal. The very fact of separate existence means something for a people which has kept on ruling itself for ten generations, though its territory was never more than one-fourth of the peninsula, nor its numbers more than one-third of the Spanish race from the middle of the twelfth century. Portugal has stood alone, with less right to such independence from any distinction of place or blood, than Ireland or Navarre fighting incessantly against foes without, from north, east, and south, and keeping down the still worse foes of its own household. But the meaning of the growth of the Portuguese power is not in its isolation. It stubbornly defended national distinction from all other powers, but in its central and as it were unifying position in modern history as the guide of Europe and Christendom into that larger world which marks the real difference between the Middle Ages and our own day. For Henry the Navigator breathed into his countrymen the spirit of the old Norse rovers, that boundless appetite for new knowledge, new pleasures, new sights and sounds, which underlay the exploration of the 15th and 16th centuries the exploration of one half of the world's surface, the finding of a new continent in the south and in the west, and the opening of the great sea routes round the globe, the scientific effects of this, starting from the new proof of the round world won by a Portuguese seaman, Magellan, and the political effects, also beginning with the first of modern colonial empires, founded by Diegema, Cabral, and Albuquerque, are too widespread for more than a passing reference in this place, but this reference must be connected with the true author of the movement, for if the industrial element rules modern development, if the philosophy of utility, as expressing this element, is now our guide in war and peace, and if the substitution of this for the military spirit is to be dated from that dominion in the Indian seas which realize the designs of Henry if this be so, the Portuguese become to us, through him, something like the founders of our commercial civilization, and of the European Empire in Asia, by the opening years of the 15th century, Portugal in a Catholic rather than a classical renaissance had already entered upon its modern life, some three generations before the rest of Christendom but its medieval history is very much like that of any other of the five Spanish kingdoms. Like the rest, Portugal had joined in driving the Moors from the Asturias to Andalusia, in the 200 years of successful Western Crusade 1001-1212. In the same time, between the death of the great vizier Almanjur, the last support of the old Western Caliphate 1001, and the overthrow of the African Moors, who had supplanted that Western Caliphate, 
between those two points of Muslim triumph and Christian reaction. The Portuguese kingdom had been formed out of the county granted in 1095 by Alfonso VI, of Leon to the freelance Henry of Burgundy, for the next 300 years 1095-1383, under his descendants who reigned as kings in Gamarins or Lisbon. We may trace a gradual but checkered national rise, to the revolution of 1483 with two prominent movements of expansion and two relapses of contraction and decline. First comes the formation of a national spirit by Count Henry's widow Donna Teresa and her son Afonso Henriques, who from a lord of Coimbra and Oporto, dependent on the kingdom of Galicia or of Leon, becomes the first free king of Portugal. His victories over the Moors in taking Lisbon 1147 and winning the day of our 1139 are followed by the first wars with Castile and by the time of quiet organization in his last years under the regency of his son Sancho, the city builder. The building and planning of Sancho is again followed by the first relapse, into the weakness of Afonso II, and the turbulent minority of Sancho II. Constitutional troubles begin with the first Sancho's quarrel with Innocent II, and with the appearance of the first national Cortes under Chancellor Julian. The second forward movement starts with Afonso II, of Boulogne, who saves the kingdom from anarchy and conquers the Algarves, on the south coast, from Islam, who first organizes the alliance of crown and people against nobles and clergy, and, in the strength of this, defies the interdict of Urbanity, Dinias, his bastard son, for whose legitimation he had made the same struggle with Rome, follows Afonso II, in 1279, and with him begins the wider life of Portugal, her navy and her literature, her agriculture, justice, and commerce. The second relapse may be dated from the Black Death 1348, which threatened the very life of the nation, and left behind a sort of chronic weakness. National spirit seemed worn out, court intrigue and political disaster the order of the day, the church and Cortes alike at feet and full only against themselves, but in the revival under a new leader, John, the father of Prince Henry, and a new dynasty the House of Aveis and its royal race of famous infants. In the years that follow the revolution of 1483, the older religious and crusading fervor is joined with the new spirit of enterprise, of fierce activity, and the Portugal thus called into being is a great state because the whole nation shares in the life and energy of a more than recovered liberty. Before the age of King Dionysus, before the 14th century, there is little enough in the national story to suggest the first state profession of discovery and exploration in Christian history but we must bring together a few of the suggestive and prophetic incidents of the earlier time, if we are to be fully prepared for the later. 1. Oporto, the port of Galicia, from the formation of the county or march of Henry of Burgundy, seems to have given the district its name of Portugalia, at one time as a military frontier against Islam, then as an independent state, lastly as an imperial kingdom, also, as the earliest center of Portugal was a harbor and its earliest border a river, there was a sort of natural, though slumbering, fitness for seamanship in the people, too, again, in the alliance of the crown with the towns, first formed by Count Henry's wife Teresa in her regency after his death, 1114-28, and renewed by her grandson Sancho, the city builder, and by Afonso II, the savior of the kingdom, we had an early example of the power of that class, which was the backbone of the great movement of expansion, when the meaning of this was fairly brought home to them. 3. In the capture of Lisbon, in 1147, by Afonso Henriques, Teresa's son, at the head of the allied forces of native militia and northern crusaders Flemish, French, 
German, and English we had brought clearly before us, not merely the facts of the gain of a really great city by a rising Christian state, not merely the result of this in the formation of a kingdom out of a county, but the more general connection of the crusading spirit with the new nations of Europe. Portugal is the most lasting monument of crusading energy, it was this that strengthened the Lusitanians to make good their stand both against the Moors and against Castile, and it was this which brought out the maritime bent of the little western kingdom, and drew out its interest on the one and only side where that could be of great and general fullness, the crusades without and the policy of statesmen within, we may fairly say, made the Portuguese ready to elite the expansion of Christendom, made possible the work of Henry the Navigator. The foreign help given at Lisbon in 1147 was only a repetition on a grand scale of what had long been done on a smaller, and it was offered again and again till the final conquest of the southern districts, between Cape Street Vincent and the Guadiana C. 1250, left the European Kingdom fully formed, and the recovery of western Spain from the Moslem had been achieved. Illustration, chart of the Mediterranean Sea by Willem Biari and Zeolan, engraved in copper 1595. Almost an altered copy of a Portlano from the 14th century. Oreg. Size 418 x 855 meters meters. See list of maps for. And when the crusading age passed away. It left behind an intercourse of Portugal with England. Flanders. And the North Sea coasts. Which was taken up and developed by Dinais and the kings of the 14th century. Till under the new royal house of Aveis. In the boyhood of Henry the Navigator. This maritime and commercial element had clearly become the most important in the state, the main interest even of government. So, from the first mercantile treaty of 1294, between the traders of Lisbon and London, we feel ourselves beyond the mere fighting period, and before the death of Dinais 1325, there is a good deal more progress in the same direction. The English Treaty of Exchange is followed by similar ones with France and with Flanders, while for the protection of this commerce, as well as to prove his fellowship or his rivalry with the maritime republics of Italy. Dinias, the laborer king, built the first Portuguese navy, founded a new office of state for its command, and gave the post to a great Genoese sailor, Emmanuel Pessenha, 1317, with the new Lord High Admiral begins the Spanish-Italian Age of Ocean Voyages, and the rediscovery of the Canaries in 1341 is the first result of the alliance. In 1353 the old treaty of 1294 is enlarged and safeguarded by fresh clauses signed in London, as if to guard against future trouble in the dark days then hanging over Portugal. For the next generation 1350-1380, the national politics are bound up with Spanish intrigues and lose nearly all reference to that larger world, to which the kingdom was recalled by the revolution of 1383, the overthrow of Castile on the battlefield of Algebarota and the accession of John of Aveis, once more intensely, narrowly national, one might almost say provincial, in peninsular matters, Portugal then returned to its older ambition of being, not a make-weight in Spanish politics, but a part of the greater whole of commercial and maritime Europe, almost ceasing to be Spanish, she was, by that very transfer of interest from land to sea, fitted for her special part, to open up those wastes of tide no generation opened before. It was through a love affair that the crisis came about. Ferdinand the Handsome, the last of the House of Burgundy to reign in Lisbon, became the slave of the worst of his subjects, the evil genius of himself and his kingdom. Leonor tells, for her sake he broke his marriage treaty with Castile 1472, and brought down the vengeance of Henry of Trastamara, 
whom the Black Prince of England had fought and seemed to conquer at Navarrete, but who in the end had foiled all his enemies Pedro the Cruel, Ferdinand of Portugal, and Prince Edward of Crickey and Poitiers. For Leonor's sake Ferdinand braved the great riot of the Lisbon mob, when Fernand Vasquez the tailor led his followers to the palace, burst in the gates, and forced from the king an oath to stand by the Castilian marriage he had contracted. For her sake he broke his word to his artisans, as he had broken it to his nobles and his brother monarch. Leonor herself the people hunted for in vain through the rooms and corridors of the palace, she escaped from their lynch law to Santarab. The same night Ferdinand joined her, safe in his strongest fortress. He gathered an army and forced his way back into the capital. The mob was scattered, Vasquez and the other leaders beheaded on the spot. Then at Oporto, without more delay, the king of Portugal married his paramour, in the face of her husband, of Castile, and of his own people. Laws are nil, said the rhyme, when kings will, but though nobles and people submitted in the lifetime of Ferdinand, the storm broke out again on his death in October, 1383. During the last ten years the queen had practically governed, and the kingdom seemed to be sinking back into a province of Spain. Ferdinand's bastard brother, John, master of the Knights of Aves, and father of Henry the Navigator, was the leader of the National Party, and Leonor had in vain tried to get rid of him. Silent and dangerous as he was, she forged some treasonable letters in his name, and procured his arrest, then as the king would not order him to execution without trial, she forged the warrant and sent it promptly to the governor of Evora Castle, where the master lay in prison, but he refused to obey without further proof, and John escaped to lead the national restoration. On the death of Ferdinand his widow took the regency in the name of her daughter Beatrice, just married to the king of Castile. It was only a question of time, this coming subjection of Portugal, unless the whole people rose and made monarchy and government national once more, and in December, 1383, they did so. Under John of Aveis the Patriots cut to pieces the Queen's friends, and made ready to meet her allies from Castile. On the battlefield of Algebarota August 14, 1385, the struggle was decided. Castile was finally driven back, and the new age, of the new dynasty, was fairly started. The Portuguese people under King John I and his sons Edward, Pedro, Henry, and Ferdinand, Passed out of the darkness of their slavery into the light and life of their heroic age. The founder of the House of Aveis, John, the King of Good Memory, is the great transition figure in his country's history, for in his reign the age of the merely European kingdom is over, and that of discovery and empire begins. That island the limits of territory and of population, as well as the type of government and of policy, both home and foreign, secured by his victory and his reign, are permanent in themselves and as the conditions of success they lie at the root of the development of the next hundred years, even the drift of Portuguese interests, seawards and southwards, is decided by his action, his alliance with England, his encouragement of trade, his wars against the Moors, for, by the middle of his reign, by the time of the Ceuta conquest 1415, his third son, Prince Henry, had grown to manhood, yet, King John's personal work 1483-1433 is rather one of settlement and the providing of resources for future action than the taking of any great share in that action. His mind was practical rather than prophetic, common sense rather than creative, but in his regeneration of the court and trade and society and public service of the kingdom, he fitted his people to play their part, to be for a time the very foremost men of all this world. First of all, he founded a strong centralized monarchy 
like those which marked the 15th century in France and England and Russia, the spirit, the aim of Louis's eye, of the Tudors, of Ivan II, was the same as that of John I of Portugal to rule as well as govern in every department, over all persons, in all causes, as well ecclesiastical as civil, within their dominions supreme, the master of all the eyes had been the people's choice, the Lisbon populace and their leaders had been among the first who dared to fight for him, but he would not be a simple king of parliaments, he preferred to reign with the help of his nobles, for though he distrusted feudalism, he dreaded Cortes still more, so, while in most of the new monarchies of Europe the subjection or humiliation of the baronage was a primary article of policy, John tried to win his way by lavish gifts of land, while resolutely checking feudalism in government, curtailing local immunities, and guarding the liberties of the towns against noble usurpers. We shall see the results of this in the life of Prince Henry, at present there is only space to notice the general fact. The other lines of John's home government his reform of criminal procedure, his sanction of the vernacular in legal and official business in place of Latin, his attempt to publish the first collection of Portuguese laws, his settlement of the court in the true national capital of Lisbon are only to be linked with the life of his son, as helping one and all of them towards that conscious political unity on which Henry's work was grounded. The same was the result of his foreign policy, which was nothing more than the old state rules of Dinias, systematic neutrality in Spain and a commercial alliance with England and the northern nations, were but the common sense securities of the restored kingdom, but they played another part than one of mere defense, in drawing out the seamanship and worldly knowledge, and even the greed of Portuguese traders, in the marts of Bruges and London, the schoolmasters of husbandry to Europe. Henry's countrymen met the travelers and merchants of Italy and Flanders and England and the Hans towns, and gained some inkling of the course and profits of the overland trade from India and the further east. First as in Missons and Montpellier they saw the Malaguet pepper and other merchandise of the Sahara and Guinea caravans, the Windsor and Paris treaties of 1486 and 1489, the marriage of John himself with Philippa, daughter of old, John of Gaunt, time-honored, and time-serving, Lancaster and the consequent alliance between the House of Aveis and the House of our own Henry Ivy, are proofs of an unwritten but well understood triple alliance of England, Flanders, and Portugal, which had been fostered by the Crusades and by trade and family politics, and through this friendship had come into being what was now the chief outward activity of Portuguese life, an interest in commerce, which was the beginning of a career of discovery and colonization. Lastly, besides good government, Besides saving the kingdom and keeping it safely in the most prosperous path, Portugal owed to King John and his English wife the training of their five sons, Edward the Eloquent, Pedro the Great Regent, Henry the Navigator, John the Constable, Ferdinand the Saint the cousins of our own Henry the Henry of Ezinkert, Edward, the heir of John the Great and his unfortunate successor 1433-8, and lucky as most literary princes, but deserving whatever courage and honesty and the best gifts can deserve was a good ruler, a good son, a good brother, a good lawyer, and one of the earliest writers in his own Portuguese, as a pupil of his father's great chancellor, John of the Rules, he has left a tract on the ordering of justice, as a king, to others, on pity and a loyal counselor, as a cavalier, a book of good writing, still more to our purpose, he was always at the side of his brother Henry, helped him in his schemes and brought his movement into fashion at a critical time when enterprise seemed likely to slacken in the face of unending difficulties, but the navigator's right-hand man was his next brother Pedro the Traveler, who, 
after visiting all the countries of Western Europe and fighting with the Teutonic Knights against the heathen Prussians, brought back to Portugal for the use of discovery that great mass of suggestive material, oral and written, in maps and plans and books, which was used for the first ocean voyages of Henry's sailors, on his judgment and advice, more than of any other man, Henry relied, and after Edward's death it was due to him as regent that the generous support of the past was more than kept up, that so many ships and men were found for the rounding of Cape Verde, and that Edward's son and heir Afonso V was trained in the mind of his father and his uncle, to be their successor in leading the expansion of Portugal and of Christendom. John and Ferdinand, Henry's two younger brothers, are not of much importance in his work, though they were both of the same rare quality as the elder infants, and the worst disaster of Henry's life, the Tangier campaign, is closely bound up with the fate of Ferdinand the constant prince, but as we pass from the earlier story of Portugal to the age of its great achievements, it would be hard to doubt or to forget that the mother of the navigator was also of some account in the shaping of the heroes of her house. Through her at least the Lusitanian prince of Thompson's line is half an Englishman, the Lusitanian prince, who, heaven inspired, to a love of full glory roused mankind, and in unbounded commerce mixed the world. Note 1. The old Roman Lusitania, but with a wider stretch on the north, and a narrower stretch on the east. So the Portuguese are, Lusians, Lusitanians, etc. in poetry. Sif, Camelans, Lusians. Note 2. What Dionysus willed the ever-fulfilled said the popular rhyme. Chapter VII. Henry's position and designs at the time of the first voyages. 1410-15. Then from ancient gloom emerged the rising world of trade, the genius then, of navigation, held in hopeless sloth, had slumbered on the vast Atlantic deep for idle ages, starting, heard at last the Lusitanian prince, who, heaven inspired, to a love of full glory roused mankind and in unbounded commerce mixed the world, Thompson, Seasons, Summer, 1005-1012, the third son of John the Great and of Philippa was the infant Henry, Duke of Vizu, Master of the Order of Christ, Governor of the Algarves, born March 4, 1394, who might have traveled from court to court like his brother Pedro, but who refused all offers from England, Italy, and Germany, and chose the life of a student and a seaman retiring more and more from the known world that he might open up the unknown. After the capture of Ceuta, in 1415, he planted himself in his naval arsenal at Sagres, close to a Lagos town and Cape Street Vincent, and for more than 40 years, till his death in 1460, he kept his mind upon the ocean that stretched out from that rocky headland to the unknown west and south. Twice only for any length of time did he come back into political life, for the rest. Though respected as the referee of national disputes and the leader and teacher of the people, his team, 